Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Alan Cross, and this summer we thought we would do something special with the Ongoing History Podcast and give you, our fantastic audience, a bonus episode every Sunday from now through Labor Day. We're going all the way back to the spring of 2010 and a 15-part deep dive into the history of Alternative Rock. It's the History of Alt-Rock series. So every Sunday, you'll get a brand new episode of this series that examines every single facet of Alt-Rock from the 1950s right up to, well, pretty much today. And don't worry, because we'll have a brand new episode of the Ongoing History Podcast for you every Wednesday as well. So you're getting two podcasts every week now through Labor Day. I hope you enjoy. And thanks for supporting the Ongoing History of New Music. As rock and roll approached its sweet 16 birthday in the early 1970s, it was obvious that it had grown up quite a bit. With each passing year, rock was becoming more sophisticated in both sound and execution. The first wave of rockers from the 50s and 60s had grown up. They were now better musicians and could do more than play simple three-chord songs. Rock was also becoming more complicated because, well, because it could. It had the tools. By the early 70s, a four-track recording studio was hideously antiquated. People wanted to use studios with 16 and 24-track consoles and big tape recorders and racks of machines that could add cool effects to the music. Guitar amplifiers were bigger and more powerful, allowing for fatter chords and longer sustains and cooler feedback. And guitarists now had a huge array of foot pedals and other gear to help them create individual signature sounds. And let's not forget everybody at home. Home stereo systems began to improve. Hi-Fi wasn't just for electronics geeks anymore. Everyone was looking to get big amps with huge speakers. You could even listen in the car. Eight tracks were clunky, but for the first time ever, you didn't have to depend on the radio for music when you were on the road. But then again, your city might have been lucky enough to have a progressive FM rock station. Wow, imagine music on the radio that was in stereo. But for some, things were getting a little too sophisticated. The musicianship a little too accomplished, the recording a little too slick. There were those who felt that the road to technical perfection was not a good one to be on. Something had been lost. It was time to get primal again. This is the Complete History of Alt-Rock, Chapter 2. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the second part of a series on the history of modern rock. The first show covered all the deep background, and now we're ready to set the table for the big punk rock revolution of the middle 1970s. Now, this thing did not materialize out of nowhere. It had to be provoked into existence. And one of the people for that provocation was David Bowie. At the end of the last show, we left Bowie as a lost, wandering artist who couldn't make up his mind what he wanted to be. I mean, the man was taking mime lessons, for God's sake. He had recorded a series of albums, all of which went pretty much nowhere, and he was reduced to working for a company that made copies of legal documents for law firms. But as things turned out, this is the gig that was the most important job of all. See, Bowie had just endured a painful breakup with a woman named Hermione Farthingdale. They had this big fight, and that was it. Bowie was feeling all depressed and lost and lonely as things spiraled out of control. There was even a short dalliance with heroin. At the same time, maybe to distract himself, Bowie became fascinated by the American space program. 
1968 film 2001 A Space Oddity had a huge impact on him, and when the Apollo program pushed towards a moon landing, Bowie was absolutely transfixed. If you weren't alive in 1969, it's impossible to explain how big the Apollo astronauts were. They were worldwide superstars. And out of all this, the science, the pop culture phenomenon, the breakup, Bowie wrote a very dark pseudo-folk song. Using a device called a stylophone, introduced to him by his buddy Mark Bolin, another legend says it was a dictaphone, but that's doubtful, Bowie recorded the very first version of a song called Space Oddity on February 2nd, 1969. That was the day after his breakup with Hermione. Several more versions and edits appeared over the next few months, but the definitive version was recorded June 20th and then released to the public on July the 11th, just in time for the Apollo 11 mission. Broadcasters everywhere, including the BBC, picked it up as an unofficial theme to the moon landing on July 20th. Now, you're probably familiar with the hit version, so let's have a listen to an earlier attempt. This is David Bowie and a demo version of Space Oddity. This is ground control to Major Tom. You've really made the grade And the papers want to know Whose shirts you wear That's an early, early, early version of David Bowie's breakthrough hit, Space Oddity, from the summer of 1969. Because of a chance meeting on the street with some unknown singer-songwriter named Elton John, Bowie hooked up with a producer who helped him record the definitive version of Space Oddity. That recording of the song eventually received worldwide attention as people speculated on the identity of Major Tom. Some guessed it was Frank Poole, the doomed astronaut in 2001 A Space Oddity. Another intriguing possibility might be Tom Major. Who? Well, he was a small-time entertainer who would later be known as the father of British Prime Minister John Major. Anyway, Space Oddity turned Bowie into a star, but he knew he was in real danger of being a one-hit wonder unless he could properly capitalize on this momentum. But, But how? By this time, Bowie had formed a new backing band that he called The Hype. He also had a new manager named Tony DeFries, who believed that if Bowie were to go anywhere, he needed a provocative image and a weird brand that had to be marketed along with the music. And this is why DeFries encouraged Bowie to experiment with makeup and costumes. Bowie bought into this plan, picking up several long, flowing, and very expensive gowns from a Savile Row designer named Mr. Fish. Now, Bowie had always enjoyed dressing to shock, even back in high school when he was a mod. But that was nothing to what he was up to in 1970. Long hair, dresses, and is he carrying a purse to hold his makeup? Now, today we'd say, well, big deal. But in 1970s Britain, this was beyond scandalous. See, homosexuality had actually been a crime in the UK until 1967. So, dude in makeup and long hair wearing a dress, that was was as radioactive as a lump of plutonium. The outrage was so strong that Bowie was forced to change the artwork for his new album. Hundreds of record stores served notice that they would not stock the record if the cover featured Bowie in a dress. So, for years, the original artwork was suppressed. Still, the album came out. November 1970. This is David Bowie with the title track of The Man Who Sold the World. David Bowie from his dress wearing days in 1970. But 
he wasn't the only guy dressing like a girl and shocking normal mainstream rock fans. In the fall of 1971, four former teenage gang members from Brooklyn decided that playing in a band sounded way more fun than petty burglaries. So taking their name from the New York Doll Hospital, which was a real store on Jamaica Avenue in Queens that specialized in fixing rare dolls, the New York Dolls began scaring people in Manhattan in the spring of 1972. Their first gig was at a sleazy hotel in Times Square. They showed up wearing makeup and dressed in spandex and fishnets and professing to be gay. Or maybe it was bisexual. Didn't matter. It was just as weird. This was shocking. And yeah, people had heard about this glam rock thing that was happening in London, but it was nothing like this. The dolls took that look miles further. And as for the music, all the songs were short and raunchy. No solos, no complex arrangements. And who cared if they could really play? It was back to down and dirty rock and roll. The New York Dolls and Personality Crisis. Now, because they were so weird, they were written off by most people. But because they were so weird, they found a big following with people who loved weird things. And then there were those who believed that the dolls represented the best in rock and roll, that idea that attitude and energy mattered more than virtuosity. Soon, the dolls were playing regular gigs alongside Iggy Pop and a band who took the makeup thing even further. They were called Kiss. But before we go down the Dolls Road, we have to go back to Bowie. While glam rock was all the rage among teeny boppers and had the trappings of disposable bubblegum pop to many people, Bowie was ready to take things to the next level. First, the hair. His new wife, Angela, found a puffball hairdo in Vogue magazine. It looks dated now with its mullet-like profile, but in 1972, it was beyond trendy. But the big media storm came when Bowie publicly professed to be gay in an interview in Melody Maker magazine in January of 1972. This made the whole dress thing look minuscule. This was also when Bowie introduced his most famous character ever, and one that would change the course of rock music. It was a doomed, androgynous, glam spaceman, inspired by everyone from Andy Warhol and Lou Reed to Bob Dylan and Frank Sinatra. He was part clockwork orange, part autobiography, and he also contained the DNA of an obscure American singer named Vince Taylor. Bowie called his creation Ziggy Stardust. David Bowie, performing with his band, The Spiders from Mars. Although Ziggy was around for only two years, he became an enduring rock and roll character. Books and PhD dissertations have been written about Ziggy. Psychologists and sociologists and musical scholars still debate and dissect the character. And Bowie's unique use of image and theater made Ziggy one of the most profound inventions in the history of rock. And you want to know who really enjoyed this artsy, theatrical, fantastical approach? British kids! who were bored with the rock and roll mainstream. Inspired by Bowie's audacity, they'd later start something called punk rock. Now, we'll come back to Bowie again later, but we have to go back to America to check out a guy who had no time for all this theater. For him, it was all about the basics. And that story is next. This is Chapter 2 of The Complete History of Alt-Rock. 
While Bowie is showing British kids that it's okay to be weird and to proudly proclaim your outsiderness, a Boston kid was doing the same sort of thing, albeit in a much quieter way. Jonathan Richmond was the complete opposite of the big names of the day. He wore his hair short, and he was against using drugs. He could often be heard yelling, I hate hippies, around Boston. And instead of being into the Beatles and the Stones and the growing prog rock scene, Richmond preferred the strange rawness of the Velvet Underground and the Stooges. In other words, most normal people viewed him as being, well, a little more than a little weird. In 1971, he recorded a series of demos. The songs were stripped down, droning bits of fuzz and distortion with sharp and pointed lyrics. Guitar solos and drum solos were forbidden. And compared to where mainstream rock and roll was at the time, the Jonathan Richmond approach was, well, very, very different. I want to play you something. This was recorded in 1971, but it sounds like something an indie band might release today. Jonathan Richmond and Roadrunner from 1971. I still think that sounds pretty cool, and it might have been a harbinger for the punk to come, but the time wasn't quite right. Jonathan and his band, the Modern Lovers, toiled in obscurity for a couple of years before breaking up in 1974. However, two members of the band went on to bigger and better things. Drummer David Robertson found work with another Boston group called The Cars, and keyboardist Jerry Harrison soon hooked up with a new band called The Talking Heads. And both The Talking Heads and The Cars would eventually become major components of the American New Wave era. Now, where were Iggy Pop and the Stooges in all this? Well, at about the same time Jonathan Richmond was recording Roadrunner, the Stooges were being dropped from their record label. They were also getting deeper into hard, hard drugs. But riding to the rescue was, of all people, David Bowie. Iggy's craziness had made him into one of Bowie's musical heroes. The fact that he was in almost a constant state of mental instability fascinated Bowie even more. He saw beyond the drugs and the crazy, animalistic, demonic, self-destructive stage antics. Bowie saw that Iggy was actually very, very intelligent. He convinced his manager to take on Iggy and the Stooges as a project, and the result was an injection of cash that was enough to make an album that was designed to be so intense that it would actually hurt people as it came out of the speakers. Be careful with this. Iggy Pop and the Stooges from 1973's Raw Power album. That's called Search and Destroy. Of course, the Stooges couldn't hold it together and everything collapsed. Iggy eventually ended up at a mental hospital where his only visitor was, you guessed it, David Bowie. Now, despite Bowie's patronage, Iggy and the Stooges remained fringe characters, which, by the way, is just how a certain group of people liked it. Those kids who got into Bowie because of his weirdness also accepted his acceptance of Iggy. And this is how the first three Stooges albums became some of the most important templates for what would be eventually called punk rock. However, Iggy was not Bowie's only musical hero. He was also a great admirer of the Velvet Underground, specifically Lou Reed. Again, Lou was on the fringes of the fringe. No one except the uber-hipsters gave a damn or even knew about Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground. Bowie did, though, and he offered to lend his patronage to Lou. In 1972, Lou ended his exile at his parents' house on Long Island, where he had been quietly writing poetry for more than two years after stomping out on the Velvets. There was a solo album in 1972 that kind of confused his record company, but Bowie saw lots of potential, and this is when he offered to produce the next record. 
Bowie and his Spiders from Mars guitarist Mick Ronson helped Lou find a new sound. The result was a record called Transformer in 1972. Three of the songs were commissioned by Andy Warhol for a Broadway musical he was trying to stage. And everybody's surprised the album contained a genuine top 40 hit, despite the lyrics. This song told the true story of a number of people in Andy Warhol's circle. There was Holly Woodlawn, a transsexual from Miami, another transsexual named Candy Darling, and the Sugar Plum Fairy refers to a Warhol regular named Joe Campbell. The first version was recorded with drumsticks, but then it was recorded substituting brushes for those sticks. And the result was a smoky, sleazy nightclub feel. The saxophone bit at the end was played by Ronnie Ross, the guy who taught Bowie how to play sax when he was a kid back in the 1950s. And that famous sliding bass line? That was the creation of a session player named Herbie Flowers. Actually, there are two bass lines here. One is from a stand-up double bass, and the other is from a fretless electric. It has since been sampled countless times in hip-hop and dance songs around the world. And you want to know something? For his trouble, Herbie was paid 30 bucks. Then I guess she had to crash. Valium would have helped that patch. I said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, honey. Take a walk on the wild side and the colored girls say do Released in November 1972 and an AM radio hits on both sides of the Atlantic despite all the raunchy references. That's Lou Reed and Walk on the Wild Side. Hey, where are the New York Dolls? Where are they in all this? Well, not doing so well, I'm afraid. Let's get caught up with them next. As Lou Reed was working with David Bowie, as Iggy was searching and destroying himself with the Stooges, and as Jonathan Richmond continued to hate hippies, the New York Dolls actually seemed to be on the verge of something. As they were being courted for a record deal, Rod Stewart, of all people, invited the band to London to open a show for him in November of 1972. But then drummer Billy Mercia got drunk. Two groupies hauled him back to their apartment, dunked him in cold water in the bathtub, and poured coffee down his throat. He suffocated, and he drowned. Back in New York, they hired a new drummer named Jerry Nolan. The record deal came through, and a self-titled debut record was released in August of 1973, but outside of the band's immediate circle of fans, no one noticed. There was a second record, came out in the spring of 1974, and they called it Too Much Too Soon. The New York Dolls, from their second album, Too Much, Too Soon, that's called Human Being. That record didn't do anything either, except for the owner of a small, weird clothing shop in London. His name was Malcolm McLaren, and he chanced upon the Dolls when he was in New York for a clothing show. He'd been thinking about getting into band management, so when the Dolls were dropped from their record deal and needed new management, the completely inexperienced, but very ambitious, Malcolm stepped in. He thought the Dolls needed a complete image makeover. That would fix everything. So it was out with the spandex and the makeup and the big hair and in with red leather. And whenever they played live, the backdrop would be a big Soviet flag. And eh, not the smartest move back then. And it wasn't as interesting as the sexual weirdness that had attracted the original fan base. There were a couple of tours before everything fell apart while the band was on the road in Florida. But some recordings do survive. Here's what the dying doll sounded like in 1975. When I say love, you best believe I'm in love, Tell her why the kids are moving so slow Ain't it that they just don't have a place to go When the day starts with you The 
The Dolls, live in March 1975. A short time later, they were done. But all was not lost, because Malcolm McLaren went back to his shop in England with some definite ideas on what he'd do next time. As 1973 wore on, some people thought that something was happening to music. Lou Reed had a top 40 hit, David Bowie was an international superstar, and he even had to celebrate that the New York Dolls had had a major label record deal. Well, for a while, anyway. At the same time, there were those who firmly believed that the peace and love ideals of the 1960s were a miserable failure. The promises of hippie culture had failed. Meanwhile, the music on the radio was just awful, and it was getting worse. Somebody had to do something. It was time to get real. And things began to get very real at a small club in one of the scuzziest parts of New York City. And this is where we finally get to the concept of something called punk rock. That's next time. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 